body needs to be uh, obeying the rules of the church, although these principles do apply to them, they will be held accountable for them, and they will be punished if they don't walk in accordance to them. But we're making a distinction. What is unrighteousness? What is righteousness that the church ought to be walking in? So, again, the, the context is, if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul's real anger at this moment, which he says down, uh, is, is intentionally shaming them, is that they were unable to sort out personal grievances and financial debts and offenses between each other. And they would, like we said, Jerry Springer, Judge Judy style, drag their problems in front of the, the, uh, uh, the courts of the public arena where everyone would gather just to watch some midday TV. They would watch those go down and they would see the, the, the Christians fighting each other for money over grievances. It was horrible. And Paul's flow then is, by the time he gets to verse 9, he's saying, don't you realize they're unrighteous? What are you doing dragging your problems before them? They're unrighteous. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's as if he's saying, you want them to judge and rule over your moral grievances and misunderstandings when they aren't even inheriting the kingdom of God that you will inherit and you will rule in. How can you think they are best candidates to judge you? Settle disputes within the context of a local church. That's really the, the essence of why he says what he's going to say. That's the context. But we would do a, a great uh, uh, disservice. I would do a great disservice to you, a lot of you young, a lot of you uh, new Christians and others well-seasoned Christians. It would be a disservice if we sort of skimmed through this passage and just kept the larger context in mind, and sort of tiptoed around the sharp bits and moved on to the rest of chapter 6. Uh, I don't think that's, I think that is often what pastors do, and that is why many churches have Christians who look like the culture or at least think in categories that the culture does. I think this is why many Christians are, are confused about this sin or these sins as we're going to look at them and don't know how to defend them or at least don't know how to hold their position with firmness and yet be loving. And so you kind of get the picketers over here who throw glass Molokov cocktails and then you've got the, the, the peace, love, unity team over here who accept anything and everybody. And is there a middle road? Yes, there is. There is to be, be Christ-like in our thinking and our behavior. So, this is going to be the, 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 the main theme of tonight. He's saying, Paul's main point is, that people who live in patterns of the sins he describes are not people who have been saved by Jesus and will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's his point. And I want to speak especially to three categories of Christians tonight where talking to those who commit these sins, maybe that's you, you'll, you'll realize this is something you're in. Or the second category are those people who call themselves Christians and don't do these sins but defend these sins, who want to say these aren't problems, these are fine, stop making trouble, I want to talk to that person. And, and then thirdly, also those who are just confused about what is the biblical stance and how do we defend it and should I really be able to know what to believe about these things. So I'm going to read the pattern and uh, read the passage, and then we'll go back and go slowly through it. Paul says, "The inspired apostle by the Spirit of God, 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor the revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. May God bless us as we dig into this glorious gospel-centered passage. In this passage, Paul lists 10 sins. However, four of them are new to this passage, and five of them, or six, four, or uh, I'm not bad at maths. I'll show you why I'm saying that. Uh, What's 10 take four? I'll round up, five-ish. Most of them were dealt with last week and the week prior when we were talking about sins, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 was going through the different lists of sins that are to do with church discipline, he also, uh, but in this passage, he brings up four new ones, which in the ESV, at least, come out as three different phrases. <clears throat> One of, uh, they are, um, here as the only new ones to this passage are adultery and thieves. And then the third one, which is really two, is men who practice homosexuality. And the reason I say that, as we'll look in, at it in a little bit, is because that's actually an English translation of two Greek words, and the Greek words actually are two different sins, uh, which put together can be one larger phrase, men who practice homosexuality, but we'll get there. First, we're going to start where Paul starts, and he says here, we're not going to skip over any, but we'll we'll, we'll clump them together if we've already covered them. We're going to start with sexual immorality, and it's it's handy that next week we're going to have, as we look at verse, verses 12 uh, through to verse 20, a, a whole sermon really around that and particularly around prostitution and pornography and that sort of thing as Paul addresses the problem in the Corinthian church. But n- not to skip over anything tonight, let's make everybody equally awkward. Uh, sexual immorality refers to those sins that break God's design for sex in creation and around the covenant of marriage. Uh, Basically, if we take the the Ten Commandments, binding for all, and Jesus' explanation on the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is his explanation of all of those Ten Commandments, we see that sexual immorality to Jesus, the Greek word porneia, refers to any sexual thought, desire, action, or even speech in flirtation that happens outside of the marriage covenant. It's a, it's a sin that condemns everybody. There is, the, of course, every action other than a man, woman, marriage, sexuality, and every thought. But we're going to look on that so much more next week. It's going to suffice to say that people who live in patterns of sexual immorality are people who have not been saved by Jesus and will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on and he says, uh, nor idolaters. We looked at this one. Idolaters are idol worshippers, which me, it sort of comes down into different categories. You can be an idolater, an idol worshipper, because you worship gods of other names than Jesus Christ. 
alongside Jesus Christ. You might, you might whack them all together and worship Jesus and Brahma and God known by many other names in many different faiths. A man and a woman. That might be your ridiculous theology. Or you might have a religion that is Jesus only. He's your only God. And yet you worship him through created images. This is, this is a lot more, this is more of an in-house question. Do you, in worshiping Jesus, have a picture that you refer to? Or maybe a movie screenshot that you've got on your phone or, or a little sculpture that you've got or a, a bead around your neck that you, you utilize. Those things are idolatry to, to bring in between uh, what God has ordained to be unseeable faith that we don't see Jesus now. We worship by faith through the word to bring something physical there and, and give ourselves a helpful created thing to grab onto is an insult to God. Because he doesn't look like birds. It's unfitting for him to be pictured as men or women or, 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 or that dude on screen who played Jesus in that movie you like or, or any other thing. It's unfitting for us to use that and say, this will stand in place as my object of worship representing Jesus. So idolatry. This, we spoke on it a couple of weeks ago, touching that, that this includes new ageism spirituality that comes in about secret knowledge and palm reading and all those sorts of things included. But again, we will speak on this in chapter 8, so I won't go exhaustively through it. What Paul wants us to know is that people who live in patterns of idolatry are people who have not been saved by Jesus and will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he then says, uh, he's, I'm going to clump the rest of the ones we haven't spoken about. Uh, we have already covered, sorry. I'm going to clump the rest of the ones that he's already covered in a previous chapter together now when we say greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. In other words, college boys. Young gals who just graduated, that, that college guys, dangerous. They are greedy, revilers, drunkards, swindlers, bad, all right? But others as well. Um, so, so when we speak of greed, this is really that desire. desire. You, you may think the greedy are just the rich. But greedy is anybody who, who desires more than God has put us in our place at the moment to have. Uh, we, we have a certain income, a certain family, a certain inheritance. We, we are where we are in the social standing. We desire more. We want more. We, we are willing to get an enormous amount of debt just to have the brands and the clothing and the, the visible outward possessions. Greed, uh, Paul in Colossians, uh, uh, sorry, Philippians speaks of this as having their God as their belly, giving it everything it wants in acts of worship to self. Or we can speak of drunkards here. Of course, drunk, uh, drunkenness is a sin. Really, it's don't young people who love finding that little that that line, guys who love going to the, the pub and love bending that line, getting drunk is drunkenness. It doesn't have to be uh, a certain time of day, it doesn't have to eventuate into certain activities or be uh, in a certain place like a pub. It doesn't matter. If there is drunkenness, which is no longer being sober. Once you've lost control of your emotions and thoughts and speech, that's drunkenness. And that can happen, of course, through drugs or alcohol or whatever else. That is also uh, an unchristian behavior. Paul then says reviler. And we, again, we, we spoke on these, so excuse me for being too brief. Reviler is somebody who is a divisive person. 
who gossips, who brings about reputation smearing, who loves reminding you of that person's failure and this person's sin and their own faultlessness and driving wedges in between the family of God. That person is a reviler. And then we have swindler. This was, as we covered, somebody who's an extortioner, cheating other people out of money, cheating them out of uh, their investments, tricking them into, uh, into all sorts of things. And Paul wants us to know, that people who live in patterns of greedy consumerism and shopaholicism, people who overdrink, gossip, or ruin people's reputation, and those people who trick others out of money for their own gain are people who have not been saved by Jesus and will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes to adultery. This is the, a new, the first of the new sins. It is to, uh, the, the breaking of the marriage covenant. Adultery has, it is porneia, it is sexual immorality, but it has an additional layer. It is a sin that is not just that sexual sin is against God and adultery is against your wife, but rather they are both against other people and yourself and God, and that marriage, uh, breaking that covenant is against your wife and the God you made that marriage covenant to. So all those who have abandoned their, their marriage bed, all those who have fled away from the wife of their youth, as the Proverbs say, all those men or women who have taken into themselves a, a love, a romance, or a one-night stand, or any sexual behavior, or texting, whatever it is, that person is committing adultery. It is the, the breaking of the, create, the creation covenant, where God made man and woman. One man for one woman till one of them dies. When we commit adultery, we break that creation design, seeking more than one wife for a man, more than one husband for a woman. It also breaks, of course, the covenant of the marriage, which was to be love to the exclusion of all else. And marriage, uh, sorry, adultery denies the complementarity of the human nature. Adultery denies that I as a, a woman need a man and a man needs a woman, that, 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 that they can exist on their own, but that God's design is for asymmetry coming together to form a, a unified whole. And adultery says that I'll, I'll break that and that won't matter and I can have who and what I desire. It is a grave sin, punishable by church discipline in the church, by death in the Old Testament, it's despised by God, a sin. God wants us to know that people who live in patterns of adultery, whether or not divorce happens, if there is adultery, those people are people who have not been saved by Jesus and will not inherit the kingdom of God. And next is thieves. Paul says here that thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is, this is the guy who promises you he'll pay you back for the thing you, you know, you've offered him, and he doesn't. The guy who intentionally or uh, very conveniently forgets about the debt and, and changes name in order to, to, uh, to, to run away from the, 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 owes, the, the owings that he has, or who, again, it, it will be related to swindling as well, maybe, who, who squeezes cash out of people or, or takes things that don't belong to him. It can, it can look like looting violently. It can look like stealing secretly. It's all sorts of things. But it's taken by force or by deception 
that which does not belong to you by God's sovereign providence. If you don't have it, and it's somebody else's, God wants you to know you're not to have it. This is, this, this is where, I mean, people who, who really uh, built the Western civilization, they had in the back of their minds scriptural truths about individual rights to property and, uh, and belongings. So that if I look at a guy who has way more than me, and I say, I don't like that he's richer, can we tax him way more so that I get more? That is a, a, a very legislated, polished, impressive version of theft. That there is a spirit of theft and covetousness that comes up in us all. But those who, who take, who desire, who steal from others, Paul wants us to know, thieves are people who, if they live in unrepentant patterns of thievery, are people who have not been saved by Jesus and will not inherit the kingdom of God. Are we still on the same page? We're, we're, we're somewhat repetitive here, but there's, a, there's a, uh, not a monotony, but a, but, a, but a process to Paul's momentum that he's building. <clears throat> and, and out of order, but here, the last two that we'll cover tonight is this, these two that come out as the phrase, men who practice homosexuality. These are, as I, I said before, these are two words. In the Greek, they are uh, the two words that come out as this phrase are malakoi, and the other one is arsenic. Uh, I knew that had happened. I knew it had happened. I said, Tom, practice saying that word out loud, or you'll sound like <clears throat> the first part of this word. Arsenikoitai, men who have sex with a male. The Greek word arsenikoitai means men who have sex with another male. And malakoi is the, is the other word which means soft or effeminate. Now, individually, they have their own meanings and refer to distinct sins that are often related but not the same. There are two layers of, and two types of sins here. Uh, but when they come together, it's reasonable that the ESV would translate it differently to other translations, although I prefer the other translations because I believe that Paul is referring to two distinct sins. When they are put together, and in the Greek, uh, uh, of, the, of the, the Greek language in the Roman day, we need to know that these really refer to the, the active and the passive in the homosexual activity, or what might be the, 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 the giver and the receiver. This is Paul's language. He's using very low-level language so that everybody understands him. And so put together, the phrase really just means all the people who engage in homosexual sex are not inheriting the kingdom of God. But there's actually more to it, and so we'll break it down. And I know that just saying that comes up a lot of questions that maybe you don't have and you're just standing rock solid on what the Bible says, but you'd love some ability to, to defend this and have a well, uh, an all-round uh, biblical view around this. I'm going to ask question number one. We're going to go to the, the, the word arsenikoitai, men who actively have sex with other men. How do we know that Paul is talking about male and male sex? Because lots of liberal theologians will say, that's not what it means. It's so confusing. What's he saying? We can't know. It's, and they throw in all sorts of confusions. Um, this is, arsenikoitai is a made-up word by Paul. 
is kind of like Shakespeare here, or you know, it's like where it's a it's what we call a preacherism when preachers can't figure out a word and throw a few words together to describe something, and you know what he means. Preacherism is a preacherism. It's like when we say that's not very reformed Baptisty. It's a made-up word. You know what we mean. And it, either Paul made it up, this word arsenikoitai, or people around the same time as him made it up, but he's the only one using the word in, in writing that we have uh, still in existence from history. Suffice to say, it's a new word in the generation of Paul. I think Paul made it up, and he's not relying on other people, and uh, this is why. Paul's Bible was not primarily, the ones he used with the Gentiles, was not primarily the Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament, once the Greeks came through, after, the, after the, the Persians and the Medes, when the Greeks came in before the Romans and took over Israel, uh, the, 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 the scholars of the day, there were 70 scholars who translated the Old Testament Hebrew into a Greek Old Testament. So that now we have a version of the Old Testament that goes back to the ancient days, which is in the same language as the New Testament was written in, which is helpful. Because what that was called the Septuagint. And the reason that's helpful is because Paul uses that translation and not the Hebrew version as his Bible when he's preaching to and quoting from the Old Testament when he's writing letters. Whenever he quotes from the Old Testament, he, he uses that translation to use with his Gentile audience because it was accessible for them. And when we go to Leviticus 18, verse 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 13, these are the, the highlighted commands from the Old Testament holiness code which condemn homosexual practice. One of them says, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. And the other one says that a man must not take a man uh, for it is an abomination. So, but but when, when we look at that, Old Testament verse written in Greek, the words used there are uh, arsenal, which is for men, arsenos, and koitai, which is what we get our uh, word koitis from, which refers to sexual activity. So the words in the Greek in that Old Testament passage is, is, is arseno and koitai. Paul just puts them both together. One means male, one means having sex, a male having sex with someone. You put them together, it's a man who has sex with a male. There is no confusion whatsoever. Just because it's a made-up word, it's a very obviously reasoned made-up word. We know exactly what Paul is meaning when he uses it. And the reason we're, it's not weird for us to go back and go, isn't that a whole bunch of hoops to jump through? Like, oh, well, he used this Bible and it used this phrase and he quotes from the Old Testament. It's not at all a stretch because back in chapter 5, over four times generally and twice specifically, he quotes from the Old Testament as a reason to why the church should be holy. So it's not at all strange in any of his letters that he's pulling language from the Old Testament and giving it to the church. So that is why we know that this word here is accurately translated as homosexuality, men having sex with men. And you might ask, well, what's the big deal with this sin? Here's the next question. What's the big deal? Why make such a, a noise about this, Paul? Uh, it seems like it could um, be, you know, a minor sin. Why is it such a big deal? Well, if you read in Romans chapter 1, if you go there with me, in a couple of 
verses, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, Paul again is writing that and he's describing different degrees of sinful degradation. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says this, For this reason, because they would not worship God, but instead worshipped creation, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What Romans 1 shows us is that it's not just another sexual sin. Not all sins are equal. Paul shows us that one of the reasons this sin particularly, homosexuality is particularly worse than just normal sexual sins, is because it's not just breaking God's law, which says don't commit uh, sexual immorality, nature itself. So that Paul says here that it's, it's not good for a woman to lust after a man she's not married to, but it is natural. It's not okay for a man to lust after a woman or to have sex with her outside of marriage, but it is at least natural. He's saying homosexuality, whether lesbianism or between men, is an unnatural, twisted desire that has within it an additional level of rebellion. Not only does it say, I won't do what you told me, I won't even obey the rules that my body is made to obey. I rebel. That is the reality of, of this sin. And so we, we take it seriously. We take it uh, 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 biblically and try and argue out of the Scripture what God thinks of it, and this is where we land, that men who do this do not inherit the kingdom. Another question could come up and say, uh, how do we know this isn't just cultural? Because this is an argument all the time. Whatever Paul says that is bad, if you like doing that thing, just assume it's a cultural thing. Fine, you know, he's just, that, that was his culture. He was misogynistic or sexist or whatever. Heteronormative, whatever they call it today. Well, the reason is because it, it can't simply be cultural. Paul is saying as an apostle, so let's assume the inspiration of the New Testament and the authority of, of apostles, he's, he's speaking in the context of the kingdom of God. He's not just saying, best not do this in church for cultural, which could be reasoned culturally. He's saying, men who do this publicly or privately, known or unknown, are not inheriting the spiritual kingdom of God's only son. So it's not merely cultural. But the other reason it can't be cultural is because this wasn't a sin that was frowned upon in Roman days. I'm going to get a little bit more graphic here because I have to. But, but in Paul's day, in Rome, when two men had sex with each other, only one of them was doing the shameful act. In the Roman mindset, sex was fine. You've got to have it. Do it all the time. And it doesn't matter what you have sex with. Male, female, child, animal. doesn't matter. If you have a sexual desire, you can have it fulfilled. The shameful, the shameful part was only if you were on the bottom, if you were receiving, if you were being uh, uh, dominated in that way, that's, like, that's shameful, that's gross, that's, that's pathetic, that's malakoi. But to be a man who takes 
and who dominates and, and it fulfills his sexual desires, there's no shame in that, whatever it is. So it doesn't make sense that this would be a cultural argument because that wasn't shameful in his day. He's actually surprising the Corinthians. He's surprising the culture. They're saying, okay, so that part is sinful and that part is sinful. The guy just doing it to whatever he wants is also ungodly. Yes, Paul wants them to know that it is. So we then might have a more modern argument that says, isn't this not just an activity? Isn't this an orientation? Isn't homosexuality an orientation? Maybe they will say, well, these people are born this way. Or how can I be responsible? God made me this way. And often this might come up in an argument against things like conversion therapy, saying, you can't be changed. Don't try to change them. And of course, there's unhealthy ways to try and force people to wash the outside of the cup and not the inside through the gospel. That's true. But that itself, that idea, the whole idea of sexual orientation is not supported by Scripture. There is no such thing. You have, I'm going to get a little bit specific, a uh, little bit um, uh, uh, technical here. You have, in your nature, you have three elements of you that is an unchangeable part of the human nature. Uh, uh, your favorite soft drink is not a part of your unchangeable nature. That flips and changes. Your favorite shirt is not a part of your unchangeable nature. Only a few elements referred, uh, uh, fall under that category. Your ethnicity and your gender and your sin nature are the only natural parts of you, or I'll say it this way, are the only parts of you that are unchangeable orientations, if you want to use that language. You, no matter how you feel, what you want to do, doesn't matter if, if you want to be a, a Samoan wrestler, if you were born a skinny white boy, you're not going to convince anybody. You don't get to choose and change. So your ethnicity is God-given, glorious, beautiful. Don't ever want to change it. But it, it couldn't be even if you wanted to. It's just part of who you are. It's not a choice or an orientation. The same is true with gender. It is not fluid in any sense. It is designed by God, given to us by God. If you're a male, you were created in that way, and it's permanent, unchangeable. Same with females, permanent, unchangeable. The other uh, part of your unchangeable nature is that you were born in sin, and you have a sin orientation or a sin nature, which makes those other two turn evil. Your ethnicity becomes tribalism and racism. Your gender becomes either misogyny or feminism or homosexuality or transgenderism or something like that, all because sin. Now, you can't ever change your ethnicity. You'll never change your gender. My friends, the good news is that you can change your sin nature. And we have been born again. However you were born the first time, you can and must be born again. This is the good news of Christ. But so when people bring into this discussion, isn't who I love sexually a matter of orientation? We say no. That is a matter of decision, choice. Now, not simply a mental, what do I feel like today? I'm aware of that. It's more than that. But when we boil it down, we cannot give more ground than the Scripture would want us to. There may be decisions that have become addictions, that have become uh, decisions that have become identified with how I see myself, that have become handed down to me culturally and affirmed by others around me. So I'm not simply saying, change your mind, you'll be right. 
I'm saying that who we have sex with before God is a decision. This also means that it is not simply who you feel attracted to that defines who you are. If you're a man, God wants you to marry a woman. If you're a woman, God wants you to marry a man and praise him for the grace that he shows, that he helps us along that way if we are otherwise inclined. But nonetheless, let's stand there on the grounds that, no, it is not an orientation that can't be changed. And, of course, we don't do this with the other sins in the list. can't say, well, I, I just have an adulterous orientation. I was born an idolater. I have a thieving nature. I can't help it. All of those are very true. You were born an idolater. You were, you were born uh, sexually sinful. It's all true. It's just not an excuse. We have been commanded to be born again. Christ gives us that grace in the gospel. And so we do not make the excuses for these things in the church. Well, then one of the last arguments on this is that people will say that what Paul's saying here, homosexuality, it's not a banning of all homosexual sex and practice. What it was, was an argument against the abusive forms of it. So pederasty, which is when the men would take the young boys and have sex with them, or, or it's talking about homosexual prostitution, when there was cult uh, uh, temple workers who were men who would be engaged in that prostitution for other men. And he's saying that's the part that Paul doesn't like. But, of course, that is completely unproven. That has no biblical basis it's not as if Paul is just talking about the... Well, first of all, there's other words he could have used in the Greek for those things. He didn't use them. He used the word men who have sex with men. The other reason is uh, we can't do this with the other sins. and say Paul wasn't against all adultery, just the bad abusive forms that are non-consensual. He was just against the thievering that was not agreed on by both parties. But otherwise, thieving is okay. No, it's, it's clear in the text. There's no argument that can wiggle out of that. This is, uh, it's, it's actually quite ignorant and proud, of course, to look back and say, this is what they say today, the, the New Testament times knew nothing of loving, warm, consensual, homosexual relationships. First of all, that's not historically true. There were examples of that all throughout Rome. Secondly, it's of co- it's, it tries to wiggle out of what Paul is condemning here. But w- when we take... The Bible as a whole speaking to this issue, we have a clear-cut case that God condemns homosexuality as an act. I'm not saying anyone who has has those desires or feelings still still, uh, are being worked on in their heart because that doesn't define you. Paul is addressing acts of sin as he is with the other sins here. And so we conclude that people who live in patterns of homosexual acts and identity giving themselves that identity, are people who have not been saved by Jesus and will not inherit the kingdom of God. But we end now on that other word, malakoi. If malakoi, asanakoitai, come together to mean the, the, the effeminated and the dominating partners in homosexual activity. But the word itself has its own meaning. That's why I think it should be separated. Malakoi means soft, to touch. Paul, uh, sorry, Jesus uses this word when he talks about John the Baptist's clothing. 
He says, what did you go out to the desert to see? Why were you so offended, in other words, is what he's saying. What did you expect to see? Some dude out there in soft, effeminate clothing, in really tight jeans, low-cut singlet, bangles, and a silky overshirt? Is that what you're expecting to see? No, John was a hard, rough guy. He, Jesus actually then says in just this seemingly not necessary sideswipe, he goes, no, those who live in soft clothes are in the palaces. Ouch. He's condemning the soft effeminacy of the rulers and, the, and, and raising up the hardness of John the Baptist as something to be exemplified. But nonetheless, that's, that word can be used to speak of clothing, clothing that you touch and it's totally non-offensive, non-abrasive, beautiful, smooth and pretty and shiny. That, if you imagine, in, in a personality trait of a man, is sin. Malakoi means softness, completely unthreatening, non-dangerous, well-behaved, keep him on a leash, does what everybody tells him to say, never amps up when he believes something to be true, says, yes, wife, whatever you want, wife, uh, uh, never ever has any reason to annoy the feminists. That guy has been conditioned by culture and is refusing to live out the personality trait, and this is what I think is so un... It's not, it's not in the way the translation comes out, and it's not in the way you hear this preached often. Yes, personality traits can be sinful. Feminineness, that's another preacherism, write it down. Feminineness or femininity is a good thing when it's in a woman. Quietness, submission, beauty, child-rearing, motherhood. The, all those sorts of things that we can come together of what the Bible calls beautiful, glorious, uh, cannot be taken away from God's calling on women. That becomes sinful if it's then acted out by men. Unthreatening, don't take the dominion mandate, don't want to, to lead and lord through Christ-like behavior, just want to do as they're told. Take the feminist class at school, study, you know, women's suffrage and, and, and believe like the culture believes. That itself is actually sin. We, we might not think that way. It, it's not the same as homosexual sin. It can go hand in hand, uh, but, but it's not the same. You can be, I, I remember I was in the Philippines on a mission trip. And there was what they, they called, they gave me the translation, ladyboys, like they have in other areas of the world. But they said there was all these, I had thought they were gals, but they did actually end up being um, uh, 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 skinny and effeminately dressed dudes who were, were with, often with, with a bit of lipstick and mascara and had girl names and very short shorts and ran around the, the college campuses. We were out there evangelizing and tracting and I pulled one of these guys aside and started talking to him, and, and as I sort of started addressing sins of sexual nature, you know, we're going through the gospel, and, and he was very quick to tell me, because I could tell he'd been judged or accused of this in the past. He said, no, 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 I've never had sex with a man. I was, I was like, well, good, you know, that's not a bad thing, that's great. Uh, you know, me too, man, that's awesome. But there's other sins here. You don't have to have been having sex with a man to be uh, committing this sin of effeminacy, the, the clothing, the intentional identification with softness and womanly attributes, the makeup, the clothing, is itself sin. 
And so what we see at the end of this book in chapter 16 of verse th- and verse 13, Paul will say to the men, act like men. Be, be dudes. Masculinity can be and should be noticed. There should and must be a difference between the way that the glory of God in women manifest and the glory of God in men manifest. And so men who, by their identity, personality, and traits, try to act soft and stay out of all trouble and live a really a, a character of cowardice instead of warrior for Jesus' mindset, those people who live in these patterns of softness and effeminacy and sins that that leads to are people who have not been saved by Jesus and are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul then says, Paul then says in verse 11, and such were some of you. The devil loves those words. The devil loves saying, as you look to the law and look to the commandments and you see your failings there and your sins just put out right in front of you, the devil loves to say, you remember who you were? You remember what you've done? You remember what's in your past on your book? Do you remember that? I remember, says the law. I remember, says the devil. And, and we can be crushed under that as, as he points to us and, and drives us down in, in fear and in, and in conviction and guilt to say, you were these types of people. And you would dare draw near to the all-holy Christ. You would dare draw near and call yourself saints, uh, assuming that you're going to inherit the kingdom of a holy God? Well, God loves reminding us that such were some of us as well. The devil and God say, you were a homosexual. You were soft. You were an adulterer. You were an idol worshiper. And neither of them forget it. The devil remembers it as an accusation against it. And the Lord remembers it as a a reminder of the glory of his grace. We don't forget it either. We own it. We admit it. Yes, Mr. Lucifer. Yes, Mr. Law that condemns me on every single line. I was those things. I did all that you say that I did and more. I'm more guilty than you can even paint a picture of. And yet I have this verse here in God's promises that such were some of you. This is who I was, and thanks be to God, his grace broke through into this sin-sunken world and saved sinners like me, with pasts like me, orientations or, 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 or traits like me. This is the type of filth that Jesus died for. And we say with all joy and with all hallelujahs in our soul that what we could never have been Jesus was for us, the perfect righteousness of God. What we should have been, he became a wrath-bearing substitute, a curse, and a sacrifice of atonement. 
I was a homosexual and still have those lusts to fight. I was a soft man and still have those traits to put away. I was an adulterer and still have lustful desires to kill. I was a thief and still have those temptations. Confess what you need to to the Lord tonight because thanks to His grace, our Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ, we can say such was some of us. Such was I. Such were us, but no longer friends. Because we have a deliverer. Paul then says in verse 11, you were washed. That crimson stain that went so deep and could never be removed on your conscience has been bleached. You are white as snow. You have been sanctified, Paul says, which means you're no longer being used for the devil's work, the the flesh's desires. You've been cut away from that sanctified, set apart for God's work now. I know your past, God says, but I know what I've called you to be. You have been also justified, Paul says, which means that your legal account now does have none of your sins written down on it, has none of your past written on your record. Your past before God is Christ's life. His perfection is your perfection. His righteousness is your righteousness. And tonight, you need to remind yourself of that. Trust again in the freshness of those promises that that all those who call on the name of Jesus can be washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Believe it. You don't, if you are one of those that, that we've just described, then, then cast your sin aside. Look to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Trust him as your Lord. Make him your king and you will be delivered entirely from this sin that condemns. Let's pray. And such were some of us, God. Every one of us has a long, long, unending list of sins that would condemn us and that would exclude us from your kingdom if, that is, we come to you on the grounds of our own doing and we don't come to you on the grounds of our own doing. We don't come to you with with our own acts of righteousness or history of, of obedience on our lips. We come with one cry and one cry only, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Jesus Christ, Savior of sinners, died for me. I trust it. I hope in it. And I walk in the newness of life he gives. I pray, God, that you would give to us the boldness that assurance brings, the joy that salvation brings to our souls. And Lord, also that you would save those who tonight are not yet in Jesus. Let them know that however far off they are, they can be brought near. However sin-sunken in guilt they are, they can be brought to life in Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for you, the author and finisher of salvation. And you are not finished with our sanctification yet. We trust that to you as well. Bless us as we go. May you be glorified. And everybody said, Amen.